Happy New Year to you all. This is It's All Relative, the podcast that researches crime and the family. And this should be the final episode in a series about the deaths of five and six-year-old Damon and Devon Routier and the coinciding attack and subsequent conviction of their 26-year-old mother, Darlie. In light of the context clues, you should be keyed in to the nature of the subject matter. So use some common sense if you continue listening. Also, if for some reason this is your first episode of IAR, stop now and go back seven episodes and listen to the Routier story from the beginning. What the fuck are you doing starting from the end? The Rolling Stones will kick us off, and I will see you on the other side. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of will and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul and faith. episode, I mentioned that Darlie modeled herself as if she were Marilyn Monroe hosting Hee Haw. Devin was always trying to make everybody laugh. He was always doing funny things, making silly faces. Damon was still at the age where he would let me hold him still. That's Darlie in her first prison interview on ABC. You can hear her tiny, breathy voice that I'm guessing she had used her whole life to get her way. Yes, I do think that 1990s Darlie was a bit self-centered, who wasn't in their 20s. What I'm not convinced of is that she is a pathological narcissist, which is, by definition, what the prosecution claimed. They still claim she is a psychopath. Remember Toby Shook from the last episode? And this is Darlie in a fairly recent interview with Susanna Reed. Is it important to you to be working during the day? Yeah, it is. I think anything that can keep your mind, you know, busy. We have a garden, and I absolutely love to do the work in the garden. Mm. It's wonderful to see the things that you plant grow. Uh, to nurture something. There's a sort of irony in that, isn't there? Because, of course, you are here on death row because people believe that you murdered your little boys, who it was your role to nurture. Yes. Devon and Damon. That's what I'm accused of, yes. Mm. That's what you were convicted of, and that's That's, why you were sentenced to death. People need to think with sense what's being said about me does not fit. Can you hear the difference? To me, it sounds like she's gained some maturity and sense about herself. Darlie, they said, was in love with having money and being able to spend that money on herself. 
The kids took up too much of her time and too much of that money. They, Darley and Darren, were two months behind in their mortgage and had roughly $10,000 in credit card debt. They had received a letter from the mortgage company warning foreclosure if they didn't bring the account current. This letter actually seems unusual for a mortgage company. Most lending companies would rather have you pay late fees than send the account off to collections. Mortgage companies pretty much never act on a foreclosure when you're only two months behind. But lending companies are not usually above scare tactics, so I suppose threatening to foreclose is the biggest scare tactic of them all. Not sure if Darley and Darren were aware of this, so the letter still may have been a pressure point. Money problems freak me out, and even knowing that the mortgage company is not likely to foreclose so soon would still put my anxiety in overdrive. Darley does testify that the mortgage bill was actually paid before that letter arrived, and the bill was, in fact, found in the trash by the police. Having had some bills like this in my early marriage years, I buy it. Remember, back in the dark ages of the 90s, there wasn't much instant anything with the accounts. Most everything was done by mail, and things crossing paths in snail mail was not uncommon. That's why a lot of so-called overdue notices would include a phrase like, please disregard if you have already paid this bill. An additional financial problem pointed out by the prosecution is that the routiers were late paying their taxes that year. But, according to Darren, they had been behind paying their taxes for the previous four years, so it wasn't anything new. They had also attempted to get a $5,000 unsecured loan and were turned down. Supposedly, this was for a vacation. However, Darren testifies if they had asked for a secure loan, they would have gotten it. The loan officer, Oki Williams, great name by the way, testified that the only way the bank would have given them the loan is if it were secured by a CD. This is honestly my experience with banks. They are out to make money and don't like to take risks. So, I don't necessarily see this as a serious indication of their finances. If Darren were willing to go through a company more inclined to deal, he would have gotten the loan at a much higher interest rate, but he would have gotten the loan. In keeping with the reputation of Jaguar, Darren's 10-year-old Jag was, yet again, undrivable. So he was taking the SUV to work. On top of the financial problem of fixing a foreign car, this left Darley stuck at home with three little boys. The prosecution painted all of this as putting an enormous amount of pressure on Darley, who wanted life to be easy and money to be available at her beck and call. They also suggested that, since Darley also liked to look good, the fact that she hadn't lost all the weight from her third pregnancy was getting her down. She had started taking Fenfen to help her lose weight, but I can guarantee she wasn't the only woman in 1996 taking pills to help them maintain society's idea of a healthy body weight. Darley did seem to have a bit of the baby blues. When I say that, I want to be clear. There is a fairly big difference between the baby blues and postpartum depression, and especially postpartum psychosis. With Darley, it's possible she had a bit more than the blues, but it was nowhere near psychosis. The prosecution presented part of Darley's diary, written the 3rd of May, so one month before the killings. She had been feeling depressed and was thinking what would happen if she took her own life. The entry reads like a suicide note. I hope you can forgive me for what I am about to do. But it stops, seemingly in the middle of the note. 
Darley testified that this was the point she had realized she was being silly, her words, and she called Darren to come home. Darley's friend Barbara and her mother Helena both testified that Darren came home and caught Darley with the pills, suggesting that she did not call him and that he surprised her. However, both women heard the story after the fact, making me wonder how this got past the hearsay rules. Darren's testimony suggests that Darley's account is the accurate one. But in any event, it is kind of unclear why the prosecution includes this in the trial at all. They certainly don't use it to suggest the killings were a murder-suicide attempt, and this would seem the most logical form of attack to use with this kind of evidence. But they never really give it a purpose. In closing arguments, Greg Davis just mentions it in conjunction with how bad things had got for Darley to show how unhappy she was. And Toby Shook actually says that it wasn't a real attempt at suicide, but just a cry for attention. And that knowledge leads me to believe that the only purpose of its inclusion was to sully Darley's reputation, which means it had nothing to do with the killings, which means it was prejudicial and should have been excluded. The defense tries to get any mention of this quashed for prejudice under 404B. Uh, BT Dub, the prosecutor's podcast, actually does a really good discussion of 404B, if you're interested. The defense's objection at Darley's trial is actually quite long and very detailed, but again, they are overruled. Another BT Dubs, Judge Mark Toll was considered fairly liberal in the ranks of Texas judges. On paper, he's not super conservative, but at Darley's trial, he still rules in favor of the state. I feel like, on principle, my initial sense was that he would just be inclined to believe the quote-unquote authority figures based on the knowledge that they should be beyond reproach. However, one source told me that Tall, Davis, and Bevel were all friends. So that puts his decisions in a whole other category. Also, not reflected in the transcripts is the allegation that Judge Toll fell asleep on a regular basis during the trial. Jesus. I don't even know what to do with that information. Returning to the testimony of Barbara and her mother Helena, both of these women testify for the prosecution as what mostly seems to be character witnesses. Barbara met Darren and through him, Darley, through Darren's first job testing computer hardware. When Darren decided to go off on his own, he asked Barbara to come with him as an employee. Barbara and Darley became friends, but that friendship had cooled in the last year or so. Barbara's main points in her testimony were that Darley had become materialistic and she had become depressed since the birth of Drake. Barbara said that Darley and Darren had argued at work and that Darley seemed to need more help getting things done than she had in the past. I mean, yes, materialism is kind of in the eye of the beholder, and as far as I can tell, both she and Darren were enjoying having money. They didn't come from money, and now they have it. Yes, I think they went a little too far with their spending, but on its face, I'm not surprised that there was a change in their spending and their using and having things. They went from being completely strapped for cash to affording to have a fountain on their front lawn. It's not really that weird. So, Darley's depression we've kind of covered. 
Barbara had had her own bouts of depression and said she had counseled Darlie to get help. Darlie and Darren basically say that Darlie's blues were not too bad and they were short-lived. That she had finally gotten her period after birthing Drake and that had helped immensely. It also seems that Barbara passed some kind of judgment over Darlie for needing extra help after the birth of Drake. Help that she supposedly never needed before. Um, excuse me, what's the issue with that? There's nothing wrong with needing help and there's nothing wrong with asking for it. Taking care of little kids is exhausting. She now has three little kids. Boys. Believe it or not, one more kid does make a difference. Barbara also didn't seem to have a problem asking her mother if she wanted to be the one to do that helping. Barbara's mother, Helena, had come over to the U.S. from Poland. She spoke English, but her meaning could be a bit difficult to understand, and she was more comfortable conversing in Polish. Helena had only just started working at the Routier household three days a week. She had only put in her first week of work. Helena's testimony mostly involved a really unclear story of Darlie essentially neglecting the baby, Drake, and possibly almost smothering him? The way she describes this incident is really fuzzy, and I kind of get the impression that Helena could easily mistake a given circumstance for something negative. In fact, given my general knowledge of old-line Eastern European women, it wouldn't surprise me if she weren't the type to suggest negativity everywhere she looked. Even Barbara suggests that the black car her mother sees may have just been Helena making mountains out of molehills. It's pretty obvious she is embarrassed by the fuss her mother makes out of the car, even if it's not that big of a fuss. What black car, you ask? Well... Several neighbors, not just Helena, report having seen an unknown black car on the street in the days leading up to the murders. Barbara thinks her mother is just worried about brown people being in a white neighborhood. Helena, however, specifically says she remembers the car because it was driving so fast in a residential area. Helena also testifies that Darlie tells her she needs $10,000 and that Darlie brings out her jewelry to show her. If all that sounds random, that's because it is. Honestly, Helena's whole testimony is off. I mean, Darlie needs $10,000? How did that conversation get going? There's no context given for this comment. What do they need it for? And if they need $10,000, why did they ask the bank for only five? No one asks at trial and no one offers the info. That's weird. We're also given no context for this jewelry. Everyone just leaves it as if it came out of nowhere. For no reason, Darlie just takes out a jewelry box and begins showing the contents to Helena, which, I might add, Helena says is cheap. Some tellings of this story add that Darlie asked Helena if she wanted to buy any of the jewelry. While a bit stupid, that would at least have made some sense. However, this is not borne out by the court documents. They just look at it. Without context, this whole episode is meaningless. There are too many holes in the prosecution's case, even from a circumstantial evidence point of view. Darley had been assigned to a public defender, and he's the one who actually asked for the change of venue. From almost the beginning, the judge put a gag order on the case, but Darren and Mama Darley did an interview anyway, 
They hired Doug Mulder to defend them in the gag order charges, and then they decided Mulder should work on Darley's case as well. Out goes the public defender, in comes Mulder. Once the trial was over, questions about Mulder's credibility arose. Some of these questions are boilerplate appeal stuff. One of the first points of appeal is to look at the attorney on the case. But with Mulder, there were some points of actual concern. First and foremost is the potential conflict of interest Mulder would have had in defending Darley when he'd also acted as Darren's attorney in a connected charge. As I've mentioned, Darren could easily have been a suspect in the murders. I'm not saying he did it, but in a defense, you usually have the right to present an alternate theory of the crime. Like it or not, psychologically, juries like to know who did it. So if they aren't going to convict the defendant, giving them a likely alternate is one of the best steps on the road to victory. The most obvious alternate, other than the mysterious intruder, was Darren. Darren was home, and although he was farther away from the boys, aka upstairs, he also allegedly slept through the boys being stabbed. Darren reportedly slept naked, meaning that it would be easy to wash off any evidence and don clothing to cover up any other signs of an attack. And he had more reason to kill Darley than she had to kill her children. Part of the prosecution's reasoning for Darley to kill the boys was the $5,000 life policies on each boy. Two boys equals $10,000, matching the $10,000 Helena said Darley needed. But Darley was insured for $300,000, well above the boys' paltry $5,000 each. And, unknown at the time of the trial, Darren had actually been looking around for someone to rob their house for a false insurance claim. If he was willing to do that, what else would he be willing to do? Again, I'm not saying Darren did do anything here, only that it was an aspect of the crime that nobody looked into. Not the police, not the FBI, and certainly not her lawyer, Doug Mulder. Proponents of the Darley Did It campaign point to the lack of evidence that Darren was anywhere other than upstairs when the murders were committed. Here's, here's the, the bigger problem with all of the blood and all the DNA in this case. And let's, let's remember, at the time that this case was tried, no case had ever had more DNA samples tested in, it in this state. I mean, we had more than 100 DNA samples tested. We literally were able to create a DNA map for that home and that crime scene. Of all those 100 DNA samples, we had zero, none that were unidentified. All of those samples could be linked to one of three people, either Devon, Damon, or Darley Routier. There's nothing to indicate that anybody else was ever in that home. And that was Davis in an interview with Werner Herzog in 2012. However, the first glaring problem with their testing is that they only found evidence that Darley, Devon, and Damon were on the ground floor of the Routier home. These are not the only three people who had been in that house, been on that main floor. I mean, not only do Drake and Darren also live in that house, both had been right next to Darley and the boys until everyone went to bed that night. Additionally, the neighbor girl Rebecca, who helped babysit, Darley's sister Dana, Helena, and Barbara all had been there earlier that same day. And while the longer a DNA sits on a surface, the less likely it will be able to be detected, in that case, we are talking about days, even weeks not ours. The CSI should have found evidence that some of the aforementioned list of names were there. The fact that they didn't 
suggest they've done something wrong. My thought is that what they did wrong was to only test the blood. If no one else bled, of course you're only going to find evidence of just the bleeders. Just because someone didn't bleed doesn't mean they weren't there. And here's a technology detail that causes a problem with the DNA. DNA testing in 1996 would not be able to detect trace DNA, also known as touch DNA. So, if, for instance, someone had sweat, from which most people do give off DNA, and put their sweaty hand in blood, 1996 testing methods would likely only detect the DNA from the blood, not the sweat. Today, on the other hand, while not a certainty, DNA testing could pick up that DNA mixture from the sweat in the blood. The problem with this is that appeals in Texas are based on evidence that wasn't available or hadn't been included at the time of trial. In other words, no retesting the same evidence, even if the technology is better 25 years later. But, and here's red flag number two on Davis's statement, there is a bunch of organics which were never tested. First, there's the notorious fingerprint. States 85J, this fingerprint was left in blood on the glass coffee table. It is on the smaller side as fingerprints go, so the assumption was that it belonged to one of the boys, or possibly Darley, but the boys were never printed and the print was supposedly too smudged according to the prosecution to get a definitive match to anyone. Fresh eyes and bigger databases may prove that assertion false. There is also now the possibility of getting trace DNA from that print. The infamous sock was tested in only a few places. An examination by a forensic scientist resulted in advice to test several more places. The same was found to be true of the chef's knife, a.k.a. the butcher knife. Darren's genes were remanded for testing, but it is unclear whether they were ever tested. And I think this one's my fave. There was a facial hair found, collected by CSI and DNA tested. It did not match any of the routiers. The prosecution was aware of this hair. If Mulder knew about it, he didn't use it. So for this one, we either have a Brady violation, or we have ineffective assistance of counsel. In truth, Mulder can't say he didn't know that this hair existed, because the former public defender did pass along all of the information that he had gathered thus far before Mulder took over. This information was passed on to Mulder, so he should have at least checked it out. Now, in the sock, they found a limb hair, so that's arm or leg hair. This was never tested. And there were, this is great, pubic hairs found in the living room that were never tested. Fingernail scrapings from the victims were never processed. And this one drives me bonkers. An only partial, partial, mind you, an only partial rape kit was never processed. Look, we're nearing the end, but I want to address two things before I wrap this case up. For you, that is. For me, I will probably be in this case till the bitter end. The first item I want to discuss is the psychology of the mother as a murderer. During Darley's trial, the prosecution did its level best to pick apart her character, paint her with the ugliest brush they could find. I do not know why there was no counterattack by the defense, 
but it kind of amazes me that no one brought up the knife as a weapon for a mother. The whole concept of a mother who kills her children is a difficult topic to research because, one, it's a rare thing, and two, a couple of the women included as mother murderers, I'm pretty sure, were falsely convicted, in Texas, no less. Women, in general, tend to kill in the less messy ways. The stereotype that poison is a woman's weapon still holds more true than not, and a woman who kills her child does tend to use methods like smothering or drowning. The media sensation case that only made Darley more of a suspect, that of Susan Smith, involved drowning. Andrea Yates, taking place four years after Darley's conviction, also involved drowning. Don't get me wrong. The infamous Diane Downs shot her children and then drove slowly as possible to take them to the emergency room. But studies of the subject show that use of an edged weapon was very low, only 5 or 6%. And women who use edged weapons tended to be suffering from psychosis or a personality disorder. Darley was not suffering from psychosis. Even the prosecution didn't try to claim that. So why the hell would she use such a messy and painful method? And for that matter, why would she go to the trouble of setting up the scene and then not call attention to the items she'd placed to point to an intruder? No mention of the vacuum, the sock, the cut screen, but I digress. The second point I want to address before I end for the day is the concept of an appeal. Hopefully you guys have been listening to this pod for a while, or you at least have a background in true crime. Remember back to Russ Faria and his poor wife, Betsy? Russ was convicted of Betsy's murder. The DA, the judge, and the police in Russ's case were all remarkably similar to those in Darley's trial. In fact, it is eerily similar. A few of the jurors in Russ's trial were not completely sold on his guilt, but they were being pressured by the rest of the jurors to convict him. One juror in that case agreed to be interviewed after he had been vindicated, and the whole thing went viral. That juror said something that stuck with me, and it's a terrifying statement. When she finally bowed to the pressure and agreed to convict, her thought was, well, at least he has an appeal. At least he has an appeal. Christ people, think about that for one minute. What if it was you? Nah, son, it's okay, I can handle this prison. Psh, I got an appeal. But let's go beyond that. Let's look at what that really means. The legal system in the U.S. is set up with the assumption that the process works. There is a disconnect between the jury's predisposition to see the defendant as needing their innocence proved and the system in which that defendant is innocent until proven guilty. Often, when a jury votes guilty, it's because they didn't see enough to prove the defendant was innocent of the charges. At the same time, the system operates under the assumption that the defendant was convicted because their guilt was proven. It's a bit of a twisty concept, but try to wrap your brain cells around that. Because now the problem is that the only way an appeal will be granted is if the defendant's appeal team can prove not only that there was some kind of misconduct during their trial, but also that the judges reading the appeal believe that the misconduct changed the outcome of the trial. Meaning, if the misconduct in the trial had not happened, the jury would have voted not guilty. Trust me when I say, most judges do not decide in the defendant's favor. Russ Faria was insurmountably lucky. Texas has the added bit of a difficulty in that the defendant has to prove 
that whatever bit of misconduct is being claimed, the defendant has to prove it occurred completely without their knowledge at the time. In other words, say you have an attorney who you think is not doing a great job for you. To put it in perspective, say Doug Mulder told Darley Hay, you've got this body hair they found on the sofa where you're sleeping and it doesn't seem to match anybody in your family. But hun, I don't think we should say anything because it will just confuse everyone. And Darley goes along with it because what does she know about a criminal trial? That's what she has a really expensive attorney for. Then, 10 or 15 years later, Darley tries to claim that this hair was never addressed at trial and that hair proves that someone else was in the house. You'd think this would be an issue for ineffective assistance of counsel, but there's a 99.99% chance that the appeal is going to be denied because Darley knew about the hair and it was her choice not to address it in the trial. She knew. She chose. Doesn't matter if it was the horrible, bad advice of the attorney which convinced her to make that choice. And I'm not saying that it actually happened, just trying to make things relatable. Here's another problem with appeals. Judges at the local level are elected. However, in most cases, no one knows anything about the judges they're electing. It is hideously impossible to find information about judges who are running for office. Most judges run unopposed. Those who don't are still very likely to be re-elected because voters tend to vote for the incumbent. Judges at the highest levels are appointed for life meaning that role is one of politics, not justice. Going to law school is a very expensive endeavor, and the concept of a judge is a very elite position. So the position of judge tends to be given to people who have lived a privileged life. Think Murdoch and the 1%. The longer in office, the less contact with the 99%, making them horribly disconnected from the people they are overseeing in their trials. And, for the final slap on the face, most appeal judges do not have time to read the appeals that are coming their way. They leave that to their clerks. The clerks don't have time to read it all either, so they do a bit better than skim them and look for ones they think will interest their judge, because that will put them in the judge's good graces and further their own careers. In an appeal, even if a defendant can present incontrovertible proof that they are innocent, the appeal may very well be denied, simply because the clerk didn't think the case would pique their judge's interest, or because they just didn't have time to read the appeal closely. In Texas, even if the appeal is read by the judge, if the proof of innocence was known to the defendant at the time of the original trial, the appeal may still be denied. So, every time a documentary arose in which Greg Davis said a version of this, Well, I've heard that same claim for 15 years now. And I keep waiting for them to produce some sort of evidence that would show someone else was in that home. They can't do that. For 15 years, they've been free to make whatever claim they want to, to uh, distort the evidence as they see fit, to rewrite the testimony at, at trial, uh, and again, they can make any claim that they want to. I've heard claims about fingerprints, and they failed to back those claims up. I've heard claims about DNA. They don't back those claims up. About every five years, there's another new unexplained claim that comes up from the family. But they never, ever produce any evidence that undermines that jury's verdict in this case. And that was also from his interview with Werner Herzog. 
He knows full goddamn well that the reason all those claims have thus far never manifested is that all the appeals have been denied. So when he says nothing has ever appeared, it is because they have never been able to run the needed tests. Please give me a moment to rip out my own hair. When you deal in crime, there is a bit of logic, often bandied about, which is somehow supposed to prove the guilt of the accused. Well, if you didn't do it, who did? Do you even hear yourself? That is the guilty until proven innocent fallacy all over again. The guilt of an individual has nothing to do with finding someone else to pin the crime on. Guys, if any case is going to get me attacked by e-trolls, it is this one of the routiers. I started this case not knowing one way or another what I believe. Hell, I didn't really even want to do it. But if you have any sense at all, you have to know. After my spending months and months and months looking at this case, picking it apart, looking at the actual fucking evidence, you have to know that I think the prosecution's case was shit and they railroaded her. And I have to hope that I've shown you that, if nothing else, this case needs a rigorous examination of the evidence and a reassessment of who should be charged for the crime. A new judge to the case has finally granted Darley's appeal request to run tests on previously blocked evidence. With COVID still slowing things down, we have yet to hear the results. And her legal team is keeping things close to their chest. But noises from Darley's family suggest they may have found something probative in the evidence. We may actually see some justice done in the state of Texas in 2024. If you like this podcast, please like, rate, and review. At least subscribe using whatever platform you're using to listen. If you wish to spew hateful comments, please write to at RealAlexJones on X. Contact info for the podcast is in the show notes. Sam Cook will see you out. And I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. thought this was all over, but no. Welcome to this little Easter egg. After 25 years of nothing really going anywhere, things are moving in the Routier case. The fingerprint, 85J, which the state of Texas has continued to insist is too must to match anyone and must be Darley's. The state has finally conceded that 85J is not Darley's print. And there is a hearing scheduled for the beginning of February, so we may have some news soon.